Today we read from Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. It's just not working, Matthew. I've confessed my sin and asked for forgiveness. But we're still not reconciled. 
I've walked in sexual purity waiting for my future husband, but I'm still not married. I've been careful to honor the Lord with our money, but I'm still swimming in debt. I've worked hard for every employer, but I keep getting laid off. I've poured countless hours into training my children, but I still see no fruit. I've I've prayed for decades that God would save my friend, but they still have no interest in following Jesus Christ. I have spent countless hours working on this marriage, and it is no more pleasing to God than it was when we first got started. I've heard all those words. Pastor, I know what you're about to say. I've done what I'm supposed to do, but it's just not working. Either you tell me something new or I'm finished. Have you heard that? Have you spoken that? I've spoken that. (laughs) Have you thought that? I felt the seemingly irresistible pull of that logic even when I'm street smart enough to not say it out loud to another Christian lest they say, oh, how dare you? But of course, the logic is what? If if God is real and everything he says is true, then it makes sense when someone does something wrong and they suffer, right? Right? It reinforces our sense of the justice of God, our belief that he's on the throne, that righteousness will be rewarded. What doesn't make sense is when someone does what is right and suffering comes their way anyway, right? That's what doesn't make sense. That shakes our confidence in God, and that makes us wonder if it's really worth continuing to do what's right, When I prayed earlier, thanking God that his word speaks directly to the struggles we have, Genesis 39 hits what I have just described head on. Takes it on. Because the story of Joseph wrestles with the issue of, is it worth following God? When the more I do that, the harder life gets. If you haven't wrestled with that, friend, either you haven't been a Christian long enough or you're not thinking about the Christian life (laughs) because we have to wrestle with that question. And Joseph's life in this chapter helps us do that. His life starts out in Egypt pretty rough if you're jumping in on the story with us here. Uh, But before long, things are looking up. The future looks bright. He keeps getting promoted. The Lord is blessing Joseph. Joseph is obeying the Lord. And then suddenly the bottom falls out. All the privileges that that he was just slowly gaining back. And every time he gets promoted, you're you're cheering for him like, yeah, that's right. That's right. He's a good guy. He's going to make it. All that goes away in a single day. Due to no fault of his own. It's as if human enmity And human injustice send the goodness and kindness of God just scampering to the hills never to return. So much for getting rewarded for doing what's right. I told you this passage would speak to the questions we ask. 
And it does that. And God is so kind to do that. And if you hear nothing else spoken to you from God in this chapter, please hear this. Because this is the main point. The people of God endure suffering, confident that the outcome of their life is controlled not by the injustice committed against them, but by the presence of the God who is with them. That's the point. So is the injustice committed against you real? Yes. Is the injustice against you controlling the outcome of your life? No. Right? The steadfast love, the favor of the Lord is controlling the outcome of your life and he will bring his blessing to pass in your life through his sovereign power. So think of it this way. The divinely intended effect of this entire chapter, chapter, because God's word isn't just given to us to kind of fill our minds with facts, but to change our hearts and life, right? So the divinely intended effect is what? Steady assurance built on the nearness and favor of God that no matter how bad things get, following Jesus is always worth it. Always worth it. Even when it feels like doing life his way is only making things worse. That's the divinely intended effect. And, and I think Genesis 39 builds that kind of genuine faith in our heart by shaping our expectations of what following Jesus will actually look like and feel like. Okay? So if you're going to follow Jesus, you should expect at least three things. Here we go. Number one, you should expect that the blessing of God will produce favor with men. Blessing of God will produce favor with men. Again, if you're new to the story, Genesis 39.1 picks up with Joseph where Genesis 37 ended. His brothers, who didn't like him very much, sold him to a passing caravan of Ishmaelites as a slave. And those Ishmaelites brought him down to Egypt where they sold Joseph to a man named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. Few acts of oppression, friends, are more dehumanizing than enslaving someone, right? I mean, that's, that's near the top of the list, for sure, because to, to sell a human being is to treat a person as a commodity, an image bearer as an item in your inventory. And for all Joseph knew, this was the end of the line. And if you put yourself in his shoes, the, the emotional and psychological anguish he was going through must have been excruciating. But notice, his, it's, his slavery just gets a single verse. Genesis doesn't linger on his suffering. Why not? Why not linger on that? Well, it's simply because the oppression committed against him, though real, was not the governing reality in the situation. Okay, It was the presence of the Lord who remained with him that was the governing reality. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. The Lord was with Joseph. Now listen, when, when Genesis says the Lord is with someone, that's another way of saying that the Lord is present to bless Okay? If you read, the Lord was with somebody, that's immediately what you should think. The Lord is present to bless. It's, it's not a mere statement of physical proximity. As in, 
when I go to the movies, a whole room of strangers, they're with me. Okay, that, that's not the sense here, okay? It's a declaration of God's active personal favor. So think Psalm 46, verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. What's that mean? Parallel line. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Okay, so if the Lord is with you, then it means God isn't just near to you. It means he is for you. He is upholding you. He is providing for you. He is protecting you. And in Joseph's case... The Lord expressed his favor in Joseph's life by enabling a a meteoric rise through the ranks in Potiphar's estate, right? So first, instead of getting condemned to slave and work and serve under the brutal Egyptian son in the fields, he's brought into Potiphar's house. And then before too long, he's promoted to be Potiphar's personal servant, attendant. And then finally, Potiphar appoints him as steward over all his property, And Genesis makes very clear, none of that was an accident, right? Potiphar was just being smart because even a pagan idolater like him could tell that the Lord's hand of favor was on Joseph and all that he touched in a very powerful way. Look at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Isn't that remarkable? You've got a man who doesn't worship the Lord perceiving that the God of all creation, not not the sun God or the Nile God, the Lord, this God Joseph speaks about, is clearly, his favor is clearly on this guy. The success Joseph experienced in Potiphar's house wasn't due to his unusual skill set, his ability to stay positive, (laughs) or even Potiphar's kindness. What was it the result of? God's present and active personal favor on Joseph. That's why, that's what Potiphar saw. That's what God's blessing looked like. All Joseph's favor in the eyes of men was the simple and exclusive result of God's blessing on his life. Verse five, look there. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, And over all that the Lord, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. If you've been with us through Genesis, that that should send off like, I've heard that before! (laughs) Alarm bells, right? Because that's a direct fulfillment of what? Genesis 12, 2 through 3. Where the Lord made a promise. To who? Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham. And what did he say? I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's, God's bringing, in part, a fulfillment to that promise. And it's so crazy. It's so comprehensive. It's so all-encompassing that, that this guy Potiphar doesn't have to worry about anything in his house other than what I like, roast beef or turkey. What am I going to eat today? Everything else Joseph has covered. Friend, if you're a Christian, if you have through faith in Jesus Christ been united to Christ, 
because you are trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation to God, then please know and hear this. The active, personal favor of God rests on you in an even greater way than it did on Joseph. Far greater. It doesn't mean everything you touch will turn to gold. But it does mean that you could not be more blessed than you already are. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Father created you in Christ. The Father called you in Christ. The Father justified in you in Christ. The Father adopted you in Christ. The Father is sanctifying you in Christ. And one day the Father will glorify you in Christ. So we are waiting. What are we waiting for? We are waiting to experience in a physical sense the fulfillment of Jesus' saving work on the day he returns. But you know what we are not waiting for? We are not waiting to be extraordinarily blessed by God. We're not waiting for that. We're waiting for the full physical fulfillment of that. But you, Christian, in your present moment, even in your present sorrow, you are not waiting to be extraordinarily blessed by God. It's not the physical blessings you lack that define your life. It's the spiritual blessings you possess that define your life. And as with Joseph, please hear this, the physical, visible works of love and faithfulness that you practice in response to the invisible spiritual blessings of God on your life are not designed to draw the world's attention to you. They're not. They're designed to draw the world's attention to the beauty and majestic power of Jesus. What does the Lord say in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and think you are amazing. I mean, if only I could just be like you and all your perfect Christian people. No. So that they may see your good works and not stop there and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the point. In Christ, the the favor of God is on you, but in Christ, the favor of God isn't ultimately about you. It's about him. You've been blessed so that you will be a blessing, but you are never more a blessing, friend, than when you are displaying to all the people around you the glorious character of Jesus Christ through your words, through your thoughts, and through the way you act. And there are times, Christian, when you will experience extraordinary favor with men as a result of the blessing of God on your life. Every part in that sentence was important, by the way. Because it's not always the case. We'll get there. But there are times in response to God's blessing on you, people will notice you. People will honor you. People will esteem you. People will encourage you and hire you and reward you and promote you. Not always, but many times. And when that happens, I warn you, take, take care that you heed the truth of 1 Corinthians 4-7. Not just in the words you speak or the way you talk about yourself, but, but starting in the quiet of your own mind. What does Paul say? What do you have that you didn't receive? Think about that. 
Christian, if right now you are enjoying remarkable favor in the sight of men, what do you have that you haven't received? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Okay, Joseph's favor that he had in Potiphar's house was not something Joseph had because Joseph was special. It was because God was faithful. Big difference, okay? He was with Joseph. And whatever Joseph put his hand to prospered as a result. So if you are walking in righteousness, and right now you are enjoying favor with men as a result, friend, I urge you, humble yourself and confess to God day after day after day, Lord, there's nothing I have that I have not received. The favor on God, of God on your life will produce favor with men, but it's not designed to leave people impressed with you. It's designed to make them start thinking and wondering and asking questions about the Lord who has blessed you. And all told, by the time we get to verse 6, look there. Things are looking pretty good for Joseph. Pretty good. I mean, technically, he's still a slave, but he's doing pretty well for himself. But it seems to be onward and upward in the eyes of the world thanks to this special little secret called the blessing of God. I mean, who wouldn't want to get in on that, right? Choose to follow Jesus, and and before long, I mean, you you just got to kind of go under the water and come out, and then, wow, health, healing, prosperity, it's just all coming my way. I don't know, not so fast, (laughs) I mean, the the blessing of God, think about this, will produce favor with men. But friend, it must never be equated with the favor of men. They're not the same thing. I mean, the, the Bible, think about this. The Bible is full of stories of wicked men and women who enjoyed crazy favor with other wicked men and women. The mere fact you have favor or people around you like you doesn't mean the blessing of God is on you, okay? Because the blessing of God doesn't always result in favor with men. In fact, you should also expect, point number two, that obedience toward God will lead to suffering at the hands of men. Let's think about this. Look back at verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Don't ask me to distinguish between those words. He's just a good-looking guy. And if you just thought, I'm like Joseph, (laughs) stop it, okay? That's the arrogance I was talking about. And even if you do, what do you have you haven't received? Okay, keep going. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now think about this. Joseph is a single man. There's no question he's, he's had this rapid rise to power in an aristocratic household of no small means. He's, he's in the prime of his life when his 
Physical hormones and prowess and desires are at their peak, and he apparently was a stud of a male specimen. And in that very moment, an upper-class woman who had had the unusual luxury at that time, in that culture, of spending her entire life pampering her body, said, I want to have sex with you. Come on, right now. Guys, what would you do in that moment? There's no family around. There's no church to hold him accountable. There's no pastor asking him questions. There's no dad saying, why were you out so late? There's, there's not even apparently any immediate relational consequences. And we're not just talking about a woman who's available. We're talking about a woman who wants him. Right? It's not, it's not like Shechem raping Dinah in Genesis 34. Or Judas soliciting a prostitute in Genesis 38. It would be entirely consensual. Which makes it right. Right? Look at verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has under my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. Oh, boy, that we feared God like this guy. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin? Against God. Okay. Quick time out. The main point of Genesis 39 is not a list of tips for how to fight temptation to sin and win. The main point of Genesis 39 is what? That the outcome of your life is not controlled by the injustice committed against you, but by the favor of God that is with you. But when God pours out favor, you know what God does? He empowers his people through the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and yes to godliness. So we want to learn from this guy because there are at least five realities that held him back from sin here. Okay? Here we go. Number one. First, Joseph recognized he was a man under authority who had been entrusted with great responsibility. So it was his job to what? Manage Potiphar's entire estate. Not to protect his own interest, but to advance the interest of his master. Application. If you're a Christian, your master, King Jesus, has entrusted you with nothing less. Nothing less, right? He's commissioned and empowered you to help everyone around you experience the joy of knowing and following him. Your, your life isn't about you, it's about him. And you'll answer to him for every word and thought and deed because you are under his authority, not your own, and he has entrusted his mission to you. 
Second, Joseph recognized the boundaries of his authority. Listen, he didn't conclude that simply because pleasure was available, that it was his for the taking. Think about that. There was one thing Potiphar had explicitly held back, his wife, no less than what? God had told Adam and Eve in the garden, all of this is yours. All of this is under your authority. All this is under your dominion. I've given it to you to enjoy and steward and cultivate. There is one requirement. You may not eat from that one tree. Oh, what tree was that? Third, Joseph remembered the identity of the woman before his eyes. She might have been offering herself to him. She might have been allowing herself to be filmed or photographed for his viewing pleasure. She might be encouraging him to satisfy her through online messages she's writing him in ways that her husband or her past husband never satisfied her. But none of that changed the simple fact that the woman before him was a man's wife. Joseph didn't stand there evaluating the merits of her body. What did he do? He focused on her true identity within the covenant structure of marriage. Fourth, he recognized the moral character of his actions. Notice this. He doesn't just say, "Mm, I don't think this is wise. Or, um, you know, different people have different convictions and what's good for you may not be good for me and vice versa. And so I just, I just don't think this is right for me. Or, you know, it's, it's a little early in the relationship. Like, could we just get to know each other first? What does he say? How can I do this great wickedness? Wickedness. Friend, what you do with your body, men and women alike, is never morally neutral. Ever. Okay? Either a sexual activity is right because it is in keeping with God's design for sex within the covenant of marriage, or a sexual activity is wicked because it is not in keeping with God's covenant design for sex and marriage. You have right, you have wicked. There's, there's no neutral or gray or, or morally ambiguous cat category in the middle where God's standards are kind of unclear and so we just get to do whatever we feel like as a result. He recognized the moral character of his actions. And finally, most importantly, hear this, Joseph recognized the Godward nature of all sin. Look at verse 9. The end of this verse is, is striking in this regard because all the pronouns, did you notice this? All the pronouns in his reply up to this point, they all refer back to his master. And so what you would expect Joseph to say is something like this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my master? But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He shudders in horror at the thought of sinning against God. Because Joseph knows what? He knows that behind his master's authority is an even more fearful and awesome authority, namely the authority of God himself. 
And so it's not what his master would think of him or do to him or say to him that stops Joseph from running in towards sin. It's what he knows God would think of him and God would do to him and God would say about him because he fears the Lord. I mean, think about it. What what did David say when he finally came clean about his, his adultery with Bathsheba? What did he say? Against you and Uriah have I sinned. No. Psalm 51.4, what does he say? He cries out to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Friends, if your decision to sin or not sin when temptation confronts you is solely based on a fear of temporal consequences, you will not prevail. At some point, you'll fall. You'll stumble because it's only the fear of the Lord a deep and abiding awe of God and his authority over you and everyone else around you that will deliver you, okay? Please hear that. If you are struggling with sin right now, you're aware of temptation on every side, know that what you need the most is not a new strategy. You need to fear the Lord. You need to fear the Lord. And because he feared the Lord, Joseph refused And Potiphar's wife immediately admitted she was wrong, thanked him for being so honorable, and tried to dress more modestly. No, look at verse 10. She spoke to Joseph day after day. I mean, the temptation just continued, right? And yet yet notice how Joseph responds. How does he respond? He would not listen to her to lie beside her Or to what? To be with her. We got to pause here, right? Because you know how easy it is to flirt with sin and quiet your conscience by telling yourself, even while you're doing it, that it's really okay or not as bad as it could be because you haven't gone all the way yet. When we ought to flee youthful passions and take the way of escape, we decide to linger and we toy with the possibilities. We, we just like to think about it and consider it and imagine it. Friend, the point here is that when the desires of the flesh assail you, do not open the door and invite them in for dinner. Don't, don't say, let's sit down on the couch and have a conversation, desires of the flesh. What do you do? What do you do? You run for your life, friend. You run for your life. You run as hard and as far and as long and as fast as is necessary to escape from that temptation to sin. Why? Because the salvation of your soul depends on it. That's what you do. You give no quarter to the siren song of Lady Folly in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 16. Listen, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. 
I mean, at least turn in. Don't you want to know what goes on in here? And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So from the perspective of Scripture, Joseph does what? He does everything right. He fights temptation. He flees sin. He refuses to to go against the Lord. He chooses to do life God's way. He honors the Lord with his choices. He does everything right. And therefore, God immediately responds by continuing to enable him to go onward and upward in worldly prosperity. No. No. I mean, but isn't that how it's supposed to work? If if you honor God, God will take care of you. Isn't that why the whole reason we're obeying him in the first place, preacher man? Because you told me in one of these sermons I heard that God rewards the righteous. He does, friend. He does. But what Joseph experiences on the heels of world-class obedience feels like the exact opposite. What happens? Potiphar's wife frames him for rape and with the not-so-subtle help of a healthy dose of of racism and a furious husband, she gets Joseph locked up in prison. Look at verse 20, chapter 39. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. In case you didn't know from the first part of the sentence. In prison. And Psalm 105, verse 18, fills out the details of of Joseph's, as it were, thank you for successfully fleeing temptation celebration party. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Now those of you who are thinking, yeah, but he's going to be okay. Stop it. Because Joseph doesn't know the end of his story yet, right? And in our lives, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So think about it. We, we wonder, like, I thought obeying God always leads to blessing. Well, it does. <laughs> okay? Always. Always. Listen. A clean conscience in the sight of God and man is a gift. You don't wait for that the moment you resist temptation. God gives you that gift right away. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 5? There's a spiritual joy and intimacy with God that only the pure in heart experience. But... The physical reward is often long in coming. Often long in coming. And sometimes it never comes in this life. Sometimes we do what's right. We obey the Lord and we only experience suffering at the hands of evil men from that point forward. Things seem to get worse, not better. And in case you're thinking, okay, so why am I following Jesus again? would say back to you, friend, that you know nothing about Jesus because you were following 
a suffering Savior. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, that raises a thousand more questions. (laughs) How do I rejoice when I'm suffering? When I'm humiliated in the eyes of men for doing what's right as, as a direct result of my obedience? When my boyfriend dumps me because I won't compromise my purity. When my boss fires me because I won't fudge his numbers. When my marriage gets harder, not easier, because I finally had the courage, like my pastor told me to, to lovingly confront my spouse. How in the world do we rejoice in those moments and a thousand more lives? We rejoice, friend, because if you're a Christian, Jesus' story is your story. If you share in his suffering, you should not fail to share in his glory. And Genesis 39 points us in that direction by compelling us to embrace a third expectation, a final expectation, an expectation fulfilled in Christ that holds true for all who follow him by faith. What's that? Point number three. The repeated injustice of men will not prevail against the steadfast love of the Lord. The repeated injustice of men won't prevail against the steadfast love of the Lord. I love how Derek Kidner says this. Speaking of Joseph's descent into prison, he writes, Joseph's humiliation, severe enough before, I would say so, is reenacted at a deeper level yet not too deep for God. Think about that. Think about that. Friend, there's there's no depth of humiliation. There's no depth of suffering, no depth of injustice, no depth of sorrow that comes your way on the path of obedience, suffering for righteousness' sake. No depth of any of that that is beyond the depth of God's love for you. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. That again. Oh yeah. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Do you you realize what's going on? It's a mere image of the beginning of the chapter. And our entire understanding of the suffering in the middle must be informed by the bookends on the edge. Joseph's brothers struck him down. God raised him up. Potiphar's wife struck him down. God raised him up. Sinful men struck Jesus down. God raised him up. But what do we tend to think? We tend to think that the fact I'm in prison proves God doesn't love me. That's what we tend to think. But what does verse 21 teach us to think? That God will use even an unjust imprisonment to reveal the depths of his steadfast love for you. In other words, the very things that we throw back at God as proof that he doesn't love us are the very situations God is eager to use to prove just how much he loves us. If you're willing to let him. 
And I don't know, Christian, right now, what depth of suffering you're experiencing on the path of obedience to God. But I do know that through the ever-present gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, the same God who was with Joseph is with you right now. Right now. And think about this. There's nothing passive about the presence of God. Sometimes we create these caricatures because we just don't like how we feel, so we try to blame God for it by remaking God in our image, and he usually ends up weak and pretty pitiful. He's not a friend who sits there weeping next to you because there's nothing else he can do. Ah, thanks, you know, good to know God's with me, but yes, sir, my mom and my kids and like other people, and that's not super helpful right now. Don't hear what I'm not saying. If you are suffering, the Lord weeps with you, friend. He weeps with you. He's intimately aware of your sorrows because he walked this life as a man of sorrows. And he carried your sorrows all the way to the cross where he died to bring an end to your sorrows. But the God who is with you is not helpless. He's not passive because he didn't stay dead. He's risen. He's he's reigning. He's ruling. He's moving. And he's working everything around you. This is the God who's with you. All things together for your good and his glory. There's nothing passive about that. There's no like, well, at least God's like, you know, I'm so sorry. Nonsense. He's God Almighty. He's not a passive friend. And when we're languishing in prison and our risen, ruling, reigning Savior says to us through his word, Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We don't, we don't, we do this, right? We turn away with a sigh of sorrow as if the king has just doled out a consolation prize. Thanks for playing. At least I'm with you. No, we rejoice. Psalm 46 verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. That's the God who is with you. (laughs) And if that's the kind of God that's with you, when he speaks a word, the earth melts. You know what's not too hard for him? To move on the heart of a keeper of a prison. Who in that very moment is only living and breathing. Because the king who can speak a word and make the earth melt could speak a word and make that keeper of the prison melt. He's got it. He's God. Verse 22. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. We're back to choosing sandwiches. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I've shared this before in Genesis, but do you know why the word Lord is sometimes in all caps in your Bible? Sometimes not. It's always referring to the one true God. Don't think there's like the Lord and the Lord. No, it's all the same God. 
But it's a translation of God's covenant name, Yahweh, when it's in all caps. And it reminds us that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who is worthy of our trust. And would you know, go figure, that the covenant name of God, Yahweh, appears more in this chapter than in any other section in the last part of Genesis. Why do you think that is? Well, I would argue it's because in the darkest injustice and the deepest prison that we see the unfailing love of our covenant-keeping God shining most brightly. The injustice of men will not prevail against the steadfast love of the Lord. So where do we go with this, friends? What's the point of all this? I'll get even more specific. What do you do if you're still languishing in prison and the keeper of the prison has yet to show a lick of favor to you? When it it feels like the the power and schemes and injustice of men is, is standing before you like a wall, keeping you from ever experiencing the blessings of God. What do you do then? When you choose to obey the Lord and it just seems to get harder, not easier. And when you're tempted to be one more person who calls me on the phone and says, Pastor, it's just not working. If you feel that, please call me. (laughs) Okay? But I'll tell you right now what I'm going to tell you then. And it's the same thing the Lord says here. What do you do in all those moments? You cling to the precious promise that the Lord of hosts is with you. He's with you. Because he's with you, you fear no evil. Because he's with you, you say no to sin. Because he's with you, you persevere in godliness. That the very gift of his presence, the the indwelling Holy Spirit, is given to assure you, friend, that your suffering and your sorrow on the path of obedience will not have the final word, even if you have to wait until Jesus comes back for your vindication. Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. God with you. It's a taste of something. Of what? Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So I'd say it to you this way. We don't, we don't obey Jesus because we know exactly what will happen to us tomorrow. We obey Jesus because we know he will be with us no matter what happens tomorrow and because we know exactly what will happen to us in the end of the story. That's why we obey. Because on that final day, Christian. I mean, think about this. When you get home, you will receive in full all the physical blessings, the eternal inheritance that your heavenly father is even right now storing up for you. 
And on that day, when you see him face to face, friend, you will know as you have never known before this simple truth that the greatest blessing of them all is the one you already had. What's that? God is with me. You're not waiting for that. You have it. The people of God endure suffering. And it is suffering, confident that the outcome of their life is controlled not by the injustice committed against them, but by the favor of the Lord who is with them. And if you're tempted to give up on following Jesus because it's just not working, then I leave you with this question. Why were you following him in the first place? If it's it's so, if you chose to follow him so you could have some sort of blessing other than knowing him, well, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. And you should question the authenticity of your faith. But if the supreme desire of your soul is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, then you will not fail to be satisfied. Not only in the life to come, but in this life. Why? Because it is through the very process of clinging to Jesus in the darkness when everything around him screams, it's not worth it. That something more precious than gold though perishes when tested by fire, would be forged and proved and built in you, Christian, that is beautiful in the sight of God and leads to the salvation of your soul. Do you know what that's called? Faith. And so we say with Paul, when following Jesus appears to make no sense, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm really thankful that we can bring our most raw, real, honest, hard questions to you. And that through passages like Genesis 39, you speak to the parts of our heart that maybe nobody else knows. Where, where we're, if we're honest, it just feels like following you isn't working. Father, I pray because I have said that with all my friends here who have said that, that where we have said that and where we have clung to that, right now, we ask you to forgive us. Please forgive us. Because even saying that, Lord, we have revealed that there is something we have loved more than you. You've already given us 
the greatest blessing we could ever ask for. And Father, where we have looked at Emmanuel and said, hmm, not enough. Got anything else? Oh, Lord, please forgive us. Please forgive us. That's idolatry. We need you to change our hearts. We need you to make us content in Christ. And we pray you would work that contentment by building the faith we prayed for earlier. That the injustice of men is never in control, but your favor is. We love you. Amen.